You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. We'll turn your Bible to John chapter 14. So we continue to reflect on what our God has done in the Son of God. And all that He is doing is grounded by what He has already done. So it's helpful to be reminded of that. Thank you, Adam, praise team, musicians, for leading us in worship. Let's ask the Lord to continue to bless our time this morning. So we have seen baptisms, reminded that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and it began with his own substitutionary work of living and dying in our place, being raised that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And when we see a baptism, we're reminded that he is still in the saving business. It should encourage us all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for reminding us anew of what you have done in your son Jesus at infinite cost that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that our hearts might not be troubled even though there is trouble in this world. We have a glorious future secured by the Son of God, a day when every sad thing has come untrue. All the broken things are fixed and the tsunami of destruction caused by sin is reversed. We thank you and look forward to that day, but we thank you for the Son of God And we thank you for the Son of God by the Spirit of God. Indeed, we worship the triune God this morning and we praise you. And we pray now as we come to this passage in John 14 that you would enlighten our minds, Lord, that you would rejoice our hearts, renew our wills. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order to know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for those who believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past Wednesday, July 26th, was the fifth anniversary of the worst day in my pastoral ministry. We had just completed a staff meeting, and the phone rang. Uh, My executive pastor's cell phone, Jonathan Saunders, he answered the phone, And all we heard was screaming. It was a church member named Vicki Mears. And all we could make out was that something had happened to her seven-year-old son, Lucas. So we sped to her home, which was about 10 minutes away. We got there. The first responders were there. Lucas had already been placed on the ambulance. His father was on there with him. And his mother, Vicki, was laying faint in the front yard. And um, Jonathan and I picked her up, and, and we walked her into her house. And she had a... Five other children besides Lucas. One was a baby, but the other four were running around the living room screaming. 
It was like a horror movie. But what happened next changed my life. Vicky got down eyeball to eyeball individually with each child. And she said, we will not question the goodness of God. God is a good. And she kept preaching that to each one of her children. Well, after she had spoken to each one of the children, Jonathan and I drove her to the ER, where after a short time there, Lucas was pronounced dead. He'd been run over by a tractor. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do, she handed me her phone. She said, call my mother and tell her. I had to call her mother and tell her what had happened. But afterwards, we, we drove Wayne and Vicki, the parents, back to their home where they shared the news with their, their children. And again, what happened was life-changing for me. Wayne was sitting there at the fireplace, and he gathered all of the children around him, and he just forthrightly said, Lucas is dead. But I want you to know, it is appointed unto man wants to die. And so every one of us is going to die unless Christ returns first. Some die earlier than others. But again, we will not question the goodness of God. And here's how we know he's good. He has made provision for our death by his own son's death. And he raised him from the grave, signaling that death is not the final word. Just a side note, that was on a Thursday. On Sunday, Wayne and Vicki came to church. I wasn't expecting that. No one was expecting that. That night, on Sunday night, I sat down with them, and uh, I said, first of all, I just want you to know, I wasn't expecting you at church this morning. And Wayne looked at me and he said, where else would we be? We need God's people. You're talking about a high ecclesiology there. That's a high view of the church. But then I said to them, I said, we were there to minister to you, but you actually ended up ministering to us. Vicki, you are preaching the goodness of God after your, your son had this Horrible tragedy. And then, Wayne, you, you present the gospel to your children right after hearing that your son has died. And here's what Vicki said to me. And I'll never forget these words. These are the exact words that she shared. She said, Brian, for years we have known that Wayne, because he has a, a dangerous job, he's a lineman, I may get a bad call. And so we as a family have disciplined ourselves in the goodness of God as supremely seen in the gospel so that if or when we receive that call, we won't turn away, that we will remain faithful, that we will stay the course, that we won't question God and his goodness and his love for us. 
That's exactly what Jesus is doing in our passage today. Uh, He has shared some horrific news to his disciples. He's going away. And he's going away to die. And not just to die, to take God's wrath. 10,000 or so people died, they say, in history on the Roman cross. But only one died on a cross taking the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is that he is disciplining them, to use Vicky's words, in his goodness. So that when it happens, they won't lose heart. They won't turn away. They'll stay faithful. In fact, in John 16, he says this about what he says in John 14 and 15. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Because he knew that would be the very real tendency in light of the horrible situation they would be facing over the next few hours. So to accomplish that in John chapter 14, he explains to the 11, Judas has departed at this point, why it's better that he go away, that he depart from them rather than stay with them. He's going to give several reasons, and we're going to look at those reasons over the next weeks. But we're going to look at two this morning. The first reason is that it's better that he goes away because by going away, he is preparing a better place for them than the place in which they presently live, this fallen world. And the second reason it's better that he goes away is that he actually will be the way to that place. Let's come and look to the first point uh, in this passage. At an infinite cost, Jesus is telling his disciple that he will pay. He is preparing a better place for them and for us for that matter. Look with me in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, this section really is a response to the question that Peter posed in 1336, Lord, where are you going? The disciples likely believed that Jesus' mission was a failure. We kind of pick up that when you see how they respond to his death. In fact, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they certainly believed that his his Death and his mission is is all a failure. But Jesus is going to say that the irony, the glorious irony of his mission is that it's anything but a flop, though it would take the way of a Roman cross. But I want you to think about this because this is an important passage for all of us. It's Jesus who is heading for the cross, right? Right? And yet it's Jesus who is comforting his disciples. It's Jesus who is doing the comforting here. Um, In a fallen world, there will always be reasons for trouble. If I were to ask you, raise your hand right now, do you have trouble in your heart? It's likely every hand would be raised. 
Sometimes it's a, it's a significant tragedy behind the, tr- the trouble, like we saw with Wayne and Vicky. Sometimes it's just kind of a lingering low-grade trouble because you know things aren't exactly the way you want them to be in your life and in your family's life or maybe in your church life. Whatever it may be, there are always reasons for trouble. In the disciples' case, Jesus has already shared with them that one of them is going to betray him. And that one has already departed. They love Judas. They trusted Judas. And he walks out of there as the betrayer. And that betrayal is in process. He's also shared with uh, Peter that he was going to deny him. And then, most importantly, he says he's has to, he is going away. And where he is going, they can't follow him. So, so the disciples' hearts are in deep turmoil. But what's interesting about this is he says, let your hearts not be troubled. And if you'll remember back in chapter 13, verse 21, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So a troubled Jesus is telling his disciples not to be troubled. What gives here? Well, it's certainly more than do as I say, not as I do. After all, what's behind his trouble? Well, he's in the process of being betrayed by someone he loved. Someone who had followed him for three years. Uh, He will be arrested in a short time. He will be publicly humiliated. All right? He will be absolutely tortured. And then he will be hung on a Roman cross and he will experience a death that no other human has ever experienced. He will experience the wrath of God for sin that he did not commit. And then he would be buried in a borrowed tomb for a time. That's behind the trouble. And all of that because he's bearing our guilt. He's bearing our shame. The death that is the wages of sin is on the one who was fully righteous and undefiled. All that is behind the trouble that Jesus is experiencing in his own heart. And Jesus is saying to these disciples in so many words, I am coming as your substitute. I am coming as your Savior to deliver you from your trouble. And that's why this counsel is so simple but profound. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, your times are in my hands. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And he who is not sparing his own son, but is delivering him up for you, will he not with you in him freely give you all things? Trust him. There is still trouble in this world, but the one who can reverse that trouble has come. And he is very aware of your trouble. But also Jesus says, 
There's another reason you're not to be troubled. It's because the biggest issue in life and whatever you're facing right now is nothing compared to where you will spend eternity. He says the biggest issue in life is going to be settled by me. Look with me in verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus doesn't describe this place, the Father's house, in detail. I think part of the reason for that is that words can't contain, it can't adequately describe this place, all right? Um, but he does say that it has many rooms. Now, the King James Version translates this as mansions. And maybe you have heard that translation. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate's translation for rooms is mansiones. And the most direct translation in English of that word is mansions. But both the Latin and the Greek in which it was originally written, that word actually means lodging spaces, okay? So he has come, and it says two times, to prepare lodging spaces for you. Now, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that Jesus has got to go into the construction business with hammers and nails, it actually means, now this is metaphorical language that Jesus often uses, it means that he is preparing the possibility for sinners to come into the presence of God. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's mainly talking about coming to remove the obstacles caused by our sins to come into the presence of God. Remember, the cross is, is just hours out. Hebrews 6 verse 20 says, Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf. I love that. He's our forerunner. And as our forerunner, chapter 9 verse 12 of Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy places. In other words, the Father's house, heaven, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, we're going to see in a moment, he didn't need that blood to be shed for him to come into the presence of God. He needed to shed that blood for us as sinners to come into the presence of God. But in verse 3, he makes clear this isn't just about a place to go. It's certainly that, because he speaks about a room, a house, a place. But actually, in verse 3, we see that the goal of his preparation, notice, is to take you to myself. He's speaking to every believer here, certainly speaking to the 11 disciples. But this is glorious language here. Let not your heart be troubled. 
I'm coming to prepare a place to take you to myself. In other words, he's not just the way maker to heaven. He's the destination. That's not to discount the triunity of God in heaven, but the Son of God will forever be the mediator to us for the Son or the, the, the triune God. Now, this promise to take you to myself is only appealing to those who love Jesus. I mean, think about it. You've never met anyone unless someone is being dishonest with you that doesn't want to go to heaven. Even those ardent atheists, if there's a heaven, they want to be there. But then I ask the question, do you really? If you really knew what the Bible says about heaven, I don't believe any unbeliever or any person who does not love Jesus would enjoy heaven. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, says this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, that's the way a lot of people view heaven, by the way, and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted. Sounds good, doesn't it? And no human conflict or natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a penetrating question. Because heaven is going to be centered on the Christ. Again, he says, I am coming again. This is referring to his return to take you to myself. And so heaven is a Christocentric place where God's people will go upon their death. It's a very important question. Now, two clues, I think, signal that Jesus is the destination and the dwelling place. First of all, this reference to my father's house. It's interesting because that phrase is used one other place in John. If you'll remember when we were John chapter 2, he speaks of the temple as his father's house. In John chapter 2, he says, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then immediately connects that temple with himself. He says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So he equates the father's house with his own person. And he says, you tear this down and I'm going to raise it up on the third day, referring to his own body. The second reason I believe that this is speaking about his, his own person here, the word rooms, the word rooms that is used in verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. Uh, that noun is the word monai. I give it to you, M-O-N-A-I, if you were spelling that in English. I give you that word because that is the noun equivalent to the verb we will see in just a few verses in John chapter 15 when he says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. 
It's the same word. That's just the verb version of this word for room. And so I believe that Jesus is saying, I am going. It's better than I go. You don't need to be troubled by my going because I am preparing a place where I will bring you to myself in a way that you have never experienced here on earth. That brings us to the second part of this passage. We saw that at infinite cost, Jesus is preparing a better place for us. But at an infinite cost, Jesus is the way to the place that he is preparing. Look in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is convinced they know. They just don't know that they know. He has taught them more than they even realize they know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we we do not know where you're going. I mean, he's frustrated, right? How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is the sixth I am statement. For those of you that haven't been here, Gospel of John has seven I am statements. What do you mean by I am? Well, in Exodus 3, when Moses asked the God of the burning bush his name, he says, I am that I am. This is my name forever. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. That's what he tells Moses. And seven times in John, Jesus says, I am, and then he adds a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And now for the sixth time, he says it, and he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And so not only is he signaling that he is this God who revealed himself to Moses, he is speaking in exclusive terms. He is saying, I'm not a way. I am the way. So let's break this down. First of all, he says, I am the way. What is a way? Let's define way. Well, a way is a path between a starting point and a finishing point, right? So what is our starting point? Well, it's not going to be flattering. Our starting point is, as Luke 15, 4 describes us, we're lost. That's our starting point. We're lost. And not only that, we don't care that we're lost. Paul says in Romans 3.11 that there is none who seeks after God. We're lost and we're not even trying to be found. That's our state. And Jesus is saying, I am the way. That's the good news. We have a substitute, a Savior, who has gone as our forerunner on our behalf. Now, In Psalm 24, it says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's the question the psalmist poses. And here's the answer. He who has clean hands 
strike one against us. He who has a pure heart, strike two against us. He who does not lift up his soul to that which is false, strike three. And then he adds, and he who does not swear deceitfully, strike four. It's bad news, but we have a forerunner. One who has gone, who had clean hands, who had a pure heart and has a pure heart. We have one who never lifted up his soul to that which is false. He never, ever swore deceitfully. Never was a sinful word found on his tongue. He has come as the way maker into the holy place, into the hill of the Lord. And not only that, He's made us fit to come into the presence of God with him. Again, going back to Hebrews 9, he entered once for all into the holy place by means of his own blood. Now, he didn't need to shed his blood for himself to come into the presence of God because he has clean hands and a pure heart, right? But in order to bring sinners, not only did he have to be righteous, Not only did he have to have a clean hands and a pure heart, he had to make atonement for those who don't. And that's why he's the only way. There's only one who's ever done that. There's only one who had clean hands and a pure heart, and there's only one who satisfied the wrath of God for our sin and was raised from the grave. That's why he is the way. But if that's all he was we still couldn't be saved because we wouldn't understand that way. But here's the good news. He's also the truth. He's the truth. You know, Paul speaks, and here's this is the case with every person here before your conversion. There's no special class of sinner. We're all in Adam. Outside of Christ, Adam is our representative, right? And here's what Paul says of our condition prior to our conversion. In Ephesians 4.18, we are darkened in our understanding. We are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in us due to the hardening of our hearts. We are spiritually ignorant. All right? We need the truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. So not only has he made a way, He gives us the truth to follow the way. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God and the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or as Jesus would say in John 8, 31, if you follow him, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so, if Jesus were the way, but not the truth, we wouldn't know the way. If he were the way and the truth, and that's all that he was, we wouldn't desire to know the truth or follow the way. But he's also the life. Notice, I am the life. Why do we need life? Because Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We are spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But in Jesus, we've already seen in John 1, 4, 
in him is life. And remember, uh, when he went to the tomb of Lazarus, he raised Lazarus. That was a preview, a coming preview, right? Like you go to the movies, you see the previews. This was a preview of what he would do for everyone who trusted in him. And so he is the way, he is the truth, and he gives us life to follow in that way and in that truth. Truth. And so here is what Jesus is saying. Let not your hearts be troubled because I am the answer to the world's deepest issues. What are the world's deepest issues? Yes, we have pain that we experience in this world, but let me give you the, the real issues. Here's the deepest problem. We're lost, all right? We're spiritually ignorant. Just go ask students at Tumor's Corner about their view of God. If they're not Christians, their view of God will sound more like Santa Claus than, than the God of Scripture, right? So we're, we are lost, we're spiritually ignorant, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus is saying, I have come to address all of these deepest issues. And yet, such is the fallenness of humankind that natural men are put off by his exclusivity. They hate it. If he had said, I'm a way, a truth, and a life, no problem. There would have been no problem at all. Oh, he's your truth. He's your way. Um, but he's not my truth, right? They're put off by the exclusivity. But that word, the, it changes everything. It's the primary reason that Christians have been persecuted for 2,000 years. And it's only gotten worse in our postmodern times. One modern critic, Alan Watts, he writes in his book, Beyond Theology, and I almost put this on the board, but I, it, it's so horrific, I just didn't want it even to be seen. Here's what he says. He represents many today. Christianity is a contentious faith which requires an all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus as the one and only incarnation of the Son of God. That's a classic response to the exclusive claims of Jesus. On the website, religioustolerance.org, this is their statement of belief. We do believe that systems of truth in the fields of morals, ethics, and religious belief are not absolute. They vary by culture, religion, and over time. That is a common worldview, even in Auburn. So how do we respond to that? Well, first of all, recognizing that only Jesus can save any person, right? So you're not in the saving business. But we do need to respond to these kind of attacks on the faith. Well, first of all, I would say, we're not the ones making the claim. Jesus is the one making the claim. And it's being affirmed by the one who knew him best, the Apostle John. All right? Secondly, I would say, what if the person making this claim 
is actually the Son of God. What if? Does he not have the right as the Son of God to say he is the only one who can bring us to the Father? And then third, if in order to bridge the chasm between an infinitely holy God and a sinner, God the Father had to crush his only son. How audacious and arrogant of you to think that you could provide another way. Direct it back on them. They're the ones being audacious. They're the ones being arrogant. So the arrogance is with the scoffer. The issue is, is not, who do you think you are to say Jesus is the only way? That's not the issue. The real question is, who do you think you are to believe that you can accomplish on your own what God says can only be accomplished by Jesus? We don't need to be on the defensive. We have the Son of God as our Lord and King. So consider this scenario as we close. This skeptic, and we meet them, don't we, is standing before the judgment seat of God. And the Father says, why should I let you into my holy place? And the skeptic says, well, I have been true to myself. And certainly, you as God value authenticity, right? And then perhaps God the Father would respond, but my son says he's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then the skeptic responds, yes, but his words were too narrow for my taste. Too narrow and then the father might say to this skeptic, I sent my son to a cross to bear the sins of the world. And I heard him cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I responded to my son, it's the only way. This cup cannot pass from you because it's the only way to save sinners. So if there is another way than that, don't you think I would have provided that way? And so, because there's no other way, you are despising my love for my son. And you are despising his laying down his life for the salvation of the world. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid an infinite cost to, to have a place for us in heaven. But he's also paid an infinite cost to prepare us and make a way for us to come to heaven. In other words, let not your heart be troubled. He's all in. 
He, he is completely invested in you. Yes, we have trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. The Son of God has overcome this world. And that's why our job is to believe in God and to believe also in Him. May that be so. But also realize not everyone here does. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, I can't save you. I can't convict you. But praise God, the Holy Spirit, who is all-powerful, can and does. There's some of you. What would you do if tragedy struck? What do you do now with your troubled heart? Is there a way to process it? Without Christ, you have to live almost like you have to sweep it under the mat. There's no way to process it. But here's the good news. If you will come to Christ today, if you'll repent of your sins, humble yourself and trust in Jesus and what he came to do to make us fit for heaven. The Bible tells you that at that point, you can trust him to work out everything in your life for, for your good and for his glory. But you have to come to him. So won't you come this morning as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.